Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 104th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that likes to play in a whole new arena. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. I uh, got another great episode for you tonight. Looking forward to all of our conversation. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis, what's the breakdown for everybody tonight in terms of what we're going to be talking about? Uh, well, James, welcome back from vacation. Thank first you, thank and you. Foremost. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure his name is Cliff Daigle. Uh, I don't care how he says we're supposed to pronounce it. It's going to be <laughs> Daigle, I think. Did, did he instruct you? No, he didn't tell me. Like, he heard me say it on the cast, and then I didn't realize it was supposedly an incorrect pronunciation until three days later when he said it on Twitter. But uh, it's going to stay Daigle, I think. Is it Daigle? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. That sounds familiar. Maybe it's supposed to rhyme with bagel. That sounds vaguely familiar. We, we've only been working together for multiple years. But the this is what happens when most of your communication is via chat. Yeah. And look, man, if you can't be bothered to correct it for me, then what do you want from me? Uh, all I need is Cliff. a pronunciation guide, and I promise I'll memorize it, Cliff. Cliff Deagle. Um. All right, we have a show in four parts tonight. Segment one, our top movers, all the cards that have seen the largest price increases over the last week. Segment two, cards to watch, cards James and I think may rise in price. Segment three, metagame week in review. This week, we're going to look at the Philadelphia event, uh, the Philadelphia Star City Classic. It was like a team open, too. There was quite a bit going on over there. Uh, and finally, our topic of the week, the MTG Arena Economy. We got some information about that recently, so James and I will we'll touch on that and see what's there. Let's get started here. Segment one, our top movers, our first card of the week, Stormbound, guys, from uh, Dark Ascension. Um, looking at the foil copies, doubled up from like $1.50 to $3. Uh, and attri- I'm attributing this to Pauper. Uh, I'm going to be doing that a lot today because, uh, A, I don't know what else it could possibly be. Uh, and B, there's why else would these common cards that I've never seen of spike from like, you know, recent sets uh so you get ready to hear me say popper a lot tonight yeah there's been several popper events um announced recently including star city games is doing kind of like a star city conference in the early summer i believe continuing to try to carve out their their own uh thing uh faced with all of the gps in north america being run by channel fireball and uh, you know, I think that's going to be a pretty cool event. Um, I've been saying for a long time that I think that Magic, you know, the GP style events where the focus is on one big tournament may not actually be what the Magic community is is most interested in. I think that a more mixed uh, event that has a whole bunch of options to do different things and has a little bit more emphasis on vendors and cosplay and side side action and signings and special, um, you know, access to, uh, you know, unique product or 
um, things that are only available at the events is probably the way to go. And it looks like Star City is going to be experimenting with a whole bunch of stuff, including uh, a fairly big popper tournament upcoming. And uh, so people got on the popper bandwagon since they've been kind of desperate for things to, you know, MTG finance on lately since Standard's been kind of dubious and, and ditto modern um, with a lot of our action on EDH over the last year. Um, so I'm not particularly surprised to see a whole bunch of popper stuff pop as people try to turn dollars into five dollars completely contrary to what we've been telling them for the whole time we've been doing this cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that that will be cool. And I mean, it, the popper sounds interesting. I mean, pe- people are interested in it. There was a really big side event over in London. They had like the two or 300 people that played the popper side event. So like, I get it and I get why people are excited, but you can listen to last week's cast. I rambled about popper then. Um, Next card for the week, Flicker from Urza's Destiny, uh, also foil, two and change, up to about $5. My guess was that it's part of Azor, um, but I could be wrong on this one. It does happen occasionally. I don't have a great any great information. Well, because it's not popper because it's a rare, right? So, like, Flicker. Yeah, it's definitely not popper. Yeah. I-, I was actually wondering if that was on the reserve list. Uh, it is not on the reserve list either. So, All right. Well, then let's just call it a super old foil. I mean, that's the first year of foils. So um, a rare foil from that era gaining a couple bucks is no big yeah. thing. Um, okay. Let's, uh, what do we got next here, James? Marrow Commerce from Lorwyn. We saw the foil pop a few weeks ago because people are just starting to pull together their Comenidex for EDH. Um, foils going from, or non-foils going from $2 to four fifty. Um, since we had didn't see this in uh, the Ixalan block, I'm assuming that this card is relatively safe. I mean, Merfolk are a possibility on Dominaria as well, I suppose. Um, but I think it's unlikely we're going to see a reprint of this outside of some future Commander product that's Merfolk-focused, which could be a ways away, seeing as, as how we just got a couple of cool Merfolk uh, Commanders that uh, will probably... They'll probably let rest and people fool around with for a while before they go that direction again. All of which leads me to believe this could end up being a $10 card, you know, in the mid to, to long term. I don't think it's the kind of thing I'm going to accumulate a whole bunch of, but it's certainly the kind of thing you want to pull out of your bulk, old binders, et cetera, and, and either put aside to play or trade. Yep. This type of stuff pops up every now and then. We'll get a commander deck that looks pretty cool, has some interesting stuff going on. You get a handful of cards that spike uh, based on that. And they do okay in the long term. I think the more re- the most recent one prior to Kamena was Locust God, right? We saw Coastal Piracy and stuff like that spike because Locust God looked fun. So, uh, yeah, same same boat. Mirror Commerce shouldn't be a surprise to anyone since we talked about it. Two or three weeks ago. Yeah. Next on the list, we've got Bloodbraid Elf uh, moving from $3 to $7. This is people assuming that it's going to get unbanned and modern again, I guess. This happens over and over and over again. I hope not. I hope that that is not actually what is going on here. Like, they can't seriously think... People can't seriously be buying this card ahead of the banless announcement every single time. It's crazy. Please. Please tell me that's not it. <laughs> card, card is borderline too good. It could probably be inserted in the format, but I don't don't think in the current scenario they're motivated to change much with a format that seems about as good as it's going to get. Yeah, I, I I think it's completely playable. Like I don't think it's unfair in the format, but eh, whatever. 
Uh, all right, next up is Winter Blast from Legends. Uh, I had to double check this. It is not a common, so it's not popper, and it's not on the reserve list, so it's just a real old card that was spiked. It went from uh, 450 to 1050, so, you know, a nice little pickup there, I guess, but not like anyone has any piles of copies floating around, and you are never going to find anyone to sell this to, so you're at best, you like made have made $2 on buy list. I don't know. I don't know. It's irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, people have been targeting the first few years of Magic stuff all year long, and they're really down in the dregs of the barrel at this point. But, I mean, it's not inconceivable that sitting on this kind of thing for a few years may lead to a totally decent buy list order. Um, I just think you've got higher, better priorities where you should your money will flip over faster. Right, right. It's... Um... Sorry, I just got distracted. My wife's—I don't know what she's doing up there, uh, building a barn. Apparently, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stay away from this stuff. It's just not worth your time or effort. Uh, next up, Bedlam Reveler from Eldritch Moon. The foils from four fifty to twelve dollars. So uh, nice little pickup there. Uh, you know, we have like modern and legacy used written down here. You know, I, we haven't seen this as like a breakout card in any strategies at the moment. So. Other than that, uh, I guess it's just general interest from players, you know, kind of putting their own stuff together in those formats. I mean, I, I, you know, that's really the only place I could possibly conceive of this scene, any real play. Well, it sees play. It's just not seeing, you know, it's not seeing a tremendous amount of play outside of a few specific decks. But the, the deck most recently where it was seeing play that people had some hype built up around was the Mardu Pirate Young Pyromancer deck um, that was fourth place at GP Santa Clara. Uh and that's the one that runs four Young Pyromancer, four Bedlam Reveler, and Faithless Looting, Fatal Push, a whole bunch of red and black control uh, type cards, Terminate, Dreadbar, Collective Brutality, Cold Against Command, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the whole thing is about getting a Pyromancer on the board and failing that, sticking a Bedlam Reveler that can drive it home. Mm-hmm. Okay. Works for me, I guess. Um, also, uh, we have Witchbane Orb this week. From Innistrad foils two dollars to like five and change. Uh, this is like in the Tron sideboards. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because this gives you hexproof, um, so you can't be Inquisition Thoughtseize, and there's probably some other really techy metagame cards floating around. Surgical extraction protection. Uh, no, because it targets graveyards. Doesn't Surgical it say target players? Uh, no, choose target card in a graveyard and then you search its owners. Yeah, so not so, that then. Yeah, surgical extraction, you have to, your cards in your grave, you've, graveyard have to have hex proof. Mm-hmm. All right, so next on the list, Carabus Forger foils from 275 to 8. That's a popper card. Um, in theory, up five bucks. If anybody manages to sell a set of four of those and they actually had them on hand, um, congrats, let me know all about it. Um, Ditto, uh, oh, I, guess, I guess the next card isn't a common. Wipe away from Time Spiral foils moving from 8 to 25 in theory. That's a 212% gain. That's a sideboard card in Blue Red Gift Storm, actually, that was third place at the SSG Modern Open in Columbus, Jan- January 7th, I believe. Okay, okay. that But it's only a single sense. copy, so... I mean, time spiral was quite some time ago, so those, those even fo- foil uncommons are not that easy to come by, but... Uh, I'm assuming somebody decided to mop up five or 10 copies because they saw it on camera. Yeah. I don't think that this is, uh, I, I don't think this price is going to stick. 
the wipe you know wipe away sees occasional modern and legacy play it's a it's a useful sideboard card in some strategies uh time is old so i'm not and it's only been printed in foil once so that's where this is coming from but you know eight to 25 i don't think so eight to like 12 or 13 ultimately here if you can get 20 for this i'd take it the problem with these kind of cards is takes so if you acute if you bother to get a bunch of them takes you so long to unload them that you're going to wish that you didn't <laughs> yeah basically and and if you're only going to get a couple then why are you wasting your time i mean try to minimize the total number of targets minimize the total number of things you got to track you don't want to have onesie twosies of 600 different cards because then you'll end up your closets will end up looking like ours <laughs> yeah i have so many these stupid things floating around uh, I should really deal some. I'm like, if I ever move, it's going to be miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so next on the list, in general, but if you're a magic player, it's even worse. <laughs> next on the list, Aura Flux from Urza's uh, Legacy foils moving from fifty cents to two fifty popper. I'm assuming, but this is the, exactly the kind of move that never makes you any money, even if you're selling four of them. So just ignore that and move on. Um, sea hunter from nemesis is the non merfolk that searches up merfolk which is going to be in demand from kumena players and anybody else who wants to build merfolk and edh or casually and uh, jason was talking about it on brainstorm brewery i believe last week and i took a look at the foils because i found one in my collection um, from the super collection that's like a 30 dollar card um if you can find them in your local shop still at around 15 or so where it was sitting before um that'd be a nice little pickup yeah yeah for sure for sure. Uh, cool card. What's next for us, James? Sunscape Familiar from Plane Shift. Uh, Planescape. Plane Shift? Plane. Plane Shift. Plane, Plane Shift. Shift. Yeah, Foil's moving from $1.25 to 8 That's definitely Popper. There's a Familiar's deck in Popper. Um, <laughs> uh, not convinced Popper players are chasing after full sets of foil for their decks, but we'll see how that develops. Um, the, best, the best part of this is that it's a wall. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the most expensive non-ABU wall is. Hmm. I'd have to figure that out. I'd be like foil wall of... What was that? A 08 shroud flying wall. Yeah, deni- wall of denial. That might be it. That was really popular. It's hmm. a nice looking foil. Actually, I have one of those. Next up, flaring pain from Judgment. Looking at foils, a dollar to seven dollars supposedly. This is another popper card. This one is just damage can't be prevented. Uh, curious card, I guess. This is like the burn decks, and then everyone, people in Sorry. white play circle protection, and then people play the burn <laughs> decks play flaring pain to counter circle protection. Quite a quite a little ladder they've got themselves on there. Um, but yeah, there you go. I mean, I guess if popper's popular, popper's popular, then I mean, I suppose these foils, you know, for, especially from Judgment, can be you know four or five bucks. The outcry over the like minor surge in popper popper foil prices and so forth on Twitter and social media was fairly amusing. I mean, people, what do you think is going to happen? You you're playing a game that is built around collectibles with a variety of rarities. It's been that way for the full 25 years the game has existed. <laughs> and yeah, you, I get that You know, some of you just want to play the cheapest format possible and not see the prices move. But if that format becomes popular and those cards haven't been printed in a long time, it is subject to all of the same supply and demand economics as normal. And sure, a buyout 
or somebody targeting one of these cards can accelerate that process. But if the, if the format is popular, they're going to reprint a bunch of these cards. So worry not. And the, and the reality is like, where could this really push it to? Like it's still a deck full of commons. The the most expensive deck is going to be $200 or something. It, you know, if you can't afford a $200 hobby, you really need to look at other hobbies is the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't think that that's an unfair uh, takeaway, although I'm pretty sure there are people who are going to find the idea of a $200 deck for formats to be way too much anyways. But, is, but the thing is that like, I, I've never understood this. There's, there's three major ways that you can address you loving magic, but thinking it's too expensive. You can just play casually at your kitchen table. And when somebody does something oppressive, you can just have a gentleman's agreement to, or a gentle ladies agreement to move past it. You can print whatever cards you want on your home printer and play them. <laughs> and nobody can stop you. And you can invent your own cards. Like I, it, it blows my mind a little bit that with as big as the magic community is, that we're not seeing fan created sets that are kind of like fine tuned to create a standard type environment or a perfect draft format or what have you, that that has never been a really like a big thing. You know, it's funny. It seems I, it kind of stems from a sense of authenticity. Players want to yep. feel like what they have it, what they're playing with is the real deal. Right. But at the same time, the people who are a lot of, there's a lot of uh, overlap between people who are frustrated with the cost of the game and people who don't see a problem with counterfeits, which is the biggest problem to like authenticity and magic. So definitely uh, some cognitive dissonance there, I think. And that's not across the board, but an amusing, um, conflict there i'm not even sure that like uh, printing a card at home counts as a counterfeit per se i mean if you try to sell it it certainly is but if you're just playing in your own home environment and you're living in a world where arena is going to let you play magic is going to be free to play i mean fair use (laughs) dictates that you're you know the the ethical zone is pretty gray well i don't mean I, i don't mean like that i mean like they're the the people who are angry about cards getting expensive and feel like magic should be free and no cards should cost any amount of money are the same type of people who who would go buy counterfeits not that they would make them and sell them i'm not sure i have any evidence to link those two things per se um i'll do it but- I'll, I'll do it i'll put my <laughs> name out there i think it's the same damn people if you've ever complained about a magic card being expensive you support counterfeiters there we go nice and uh i mean the the bottom line is, we, those of us li- those of us living in North America with any amount of disposable income have so many options in terms of constructing the greatest amount of value for the least amount of money spent. I mean, the, just the the access to free to play video games where the the one percent of addicts buy a bunch of skins and pay for the game for the rest of us leaves me with little to no sympathy for people that voluntarily participate in a in a trading card game a collectible card game with rarity and then complain about when some of the, some some tiny percentage of the prices go up 99 percent of all magic cards are still worth less than 10 cents you ever think about the idea that like the free-to-play type models essentially are a lot of people i don't want to say profiting but benefiting from other people's mental illnesses Oh no, I I don't just think about it. I assume it. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it qualifies as abuse. That that entire model makes me uncomfortable, to be honest. But it's it's not just the developers preying on people with mental illnesses, but like the people like me who will play Path of Exile and never put any money into it. Like I'm benefiting from other people's essentially gambling addiction or 
you know, whatever, however else you want to phrase their problem. Yep. And the industry is going to have to come to terms with that sooner or later. Mm, it's gross. Whole, whole nother topic. Yeah, right. All right. So moving right along, Crimson Manticore from Legends. Um, this is the uh, totally unplayed <laughs> card that's not on the reserve list. But again, Legends cards being targeted just because they're harder and harder to come by. This thing was like a dollar. Now it's supposedly over 10, it's like 800% gains plus. Um, again, you're not going to be able to unload these in any amount of quantity, but if you happen to stumble on some here and there and they're priced at some old price, then maybe you put a few aside for some future buy order. Uh, the next card is uh, pretty interesting. Kessig Malcontents from Avacyn Restored is a human 3-1 that when it comes into play, deals damage to a player equal to the number of humans you have in play. Totally overlooked in the first few iterations of the modern humans deck, but lately they've started running two or three copies. So the foils jumped from fifty cents to six fifty, almost twelve hundred percent gain. I'm a little surprised to see this card is as popular as it is in this strategy. It seems a little like I don't know, a little shallow, I suppose. But I suppose if your game plan is to just like attack for a couple turns and put people at a low life total, and then this allows you to kind of finish them through whatever defenses they manage to set up, gives you some reach. I guess I get it. It's it's a it's like a split card that gives you an, another human to put on the board and sets off a bunch of potential human triggers uh, and basically lava spikes your opponent. Yeah, I guess you know we're used. To, you're right. It's just, I'm just we're used to thinking of like lava spike as a significantly worse card than lightning bolt, right? Um, mm-hmm. And this is this is yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, expensive card and. Keep in mind, Kessig Malcontents is from Avacyn Restored. The English foils from Avacyn's Restored were awful. So foreign Avacyn Restored foils are much better because they were a different printer, um, which is why like foil Russian gristle brand is so ludicrously good because it's got the real foiling, not the uh, crummy English one. So uh, I, I, hmm? I did not know any of that. Yeah, I was, learned something new every Avacyn day. Avacyn Restored foils are garbage, but the foreign ones are good. So... If you're hmm. looking at picking up foil custom malcontents for yourself, uh, I would consider foreign language ones. Hmm. Even like good little like Portuguese. Uh, and finally, this week, keep watch uh, from Judgment another foil a dollar to uh, seventeen dollars. But yeah, keep dreaming. Um, three mon instant draw card for each attacking creature. Uh, it was only Judgment and Plain Chase, and Plain Chase had no foils. Cool little cephalid on the card there. Uh, nifty card in general. I mean, I like the it, it, the fact that this card could be playable is kind of funny to me. Like, I think it's a cool card to be playable, but you know, same story as all the other popper cards. I don't think the the price matters here. I, I wish popper all the yeah. best. <laughs> I, I think I, I think that there's a lot of room for magic to expand in the exploratory casual direction, and I think that. If I think about what good custodianship of this game looks like over the next five years, I think that they, it needs to be very centered on um, providing players with new experiences and experiences that are f- more fun than they are competitive. Mm-hmm. That seems, and that goes for both digital and paper. Sure. Um, yeah, they have to. It has to really be able to provide a unique experience in the real world. Um, that digital games can't do because the space for competitive online gaming and Twitch and all that is really going to eat up a lot of their, their competitive entertainment market space. Uh, if you're ever in front of a computer, I mean, not that they have any at this point anyways, but, uh, okay. Uh, 
Segment two, <laughs> cards to watch. James, you are starting with a favorite of mine. What do you got? Long-term EDH winner for sure. Last called out by us on show 59. Now it's in 12,000 EDH decks and the supply is shrinking. I'm talking about Panharmonicon foils from Kaladesh. Um, card has only been out for just over a year, but buy price, you can get these at 8 bucks now. I think we originally called it at 10 so it's actually down a little bit from the first time we called it out. But the supply is is shrinking st- slowly but steadily. And uh, I think this is the sell target on these is going to be 20 plus. It's the kind of card that's going to show up in a bunch of casual decks. People are going to throw it together in random, like way fringe modern decks. Um, and it's going to be a staple in EDH where you have the time to, to play something that has no impact on the battlefield immediately so that you get big rewards in the, in the next five to 10 turns. Um, the fact that it's super open-ended and triggers off comes into play abilities means that it's just going to get better and better as more and more combos appear for it. And yeah, I think that if you're putting together a portfolio of MTG finance stuff in 2018, and it doesn't include a few copies of Pranamonicon, you're probably not doing it right. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that foil copies of this card don't eventually get there. Keep in mind, this card is still legal and standard, too. Like, it hasn't left standard yet, so copies are still in people's binders. They haven't pulled them out. Um, but, you know, and, and non-foils, I don't want to be anywhere near non-foils of this card because this is the type of thing Wizards will absolutely come back to uh, to putting copies in, like, Commander Product, Arch Enemy, wherever yep. they go. But the foils, yeah, I mean, in, in, without a reprint, this is destined for greatness here. And one of the one of the dangers I can see on the horizon for those of us that have been accumulating a lot of EDH foils on the basis that hey they never print foils in EDH mm-hmm. is that we're one of the, the forthcoming master sets is kind of obviously like EDH masters right? Uh, yeah, I mean it, they haven't you know they're using the commander set to be that, but there doesn't mean they won't eventually pull the trigger and go oops we burned everyone out on modern masters into eternal masters into iconic masters into magic 25 uh we should go a different direction with this and market research shows us that casual edh players are the biggest segment of our our biggest growers so yeah i mean it's it's definitely a possibility i can see i can see that like in spring of 2019 or something we could get commander masters with the decks still being launched in the fall. And that's the, the moment where they, the year where they attempt to put out two major commander products and see if the, the market supports it. And I suspect that it will. The other thing is that the, the commander card pool is, is relevant cards in commander is a deeper card pool than almost any other. Right. Oh yeah. It's pretty legacy. Mod, legacy modern standard are all kind of clustered around 50 important cards. Uh, well, modern more than that because there's so many decks, but uh, you know, modern might be the second biggest given the, the 20 decks you could play in the format right now. But EDH is more like 50 to 100 decks. And, and you know, beyond cards like Cyclonic Rift that are in Soul Ring that are included in absolutely everything where they, they can fit, um, you know, there are so many cards that haven't been printed in 10, 15, 20 years, you know, even five years plus in Commander that could easily, they could easily pull together a set they got to make it work in draft too, but you know, they're going to get there just because out of desperation, like they, they can't keep going back to the well with the modern masters more than every two years or so. And they really can't keep on with this iconic masters nonsense that nobody really fully understood. I mean, th- those boxes are selling on eBay and mass drop this week for 140. What was MSRP on them? It was like, I don't even remember. 225 or whatever. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. 240, 240. Well, 240. 240. Okay, man. 
Yeah, ten dollars a pack at twenty four pounds. <laughs> That's ludicrous. I wonder. You know, I gotta wonder if they won't oversaturate. First of all, the, yes, the, the commander pool is huge compared to the other formats, uh, especially when you talk about uh, relevant cards that also cost more than like two dollars. Commander is you know far and away bigger than any other format. Um, I do wonder how much you know commander the commander world could take of that though. Um, you know, a commander's master's product. If they did, you know, do it back to back, I feel like they would drain a lot of their equity there as well. Uh, I think I think if it was once every two or three years, you'd be fine. Because if you look at the commander decks, they don't really include that many reprints. Like, they usually have, like, five to ten, mm-hmm. like, relevant reprints um, that have, like, a financial uh, impact. Um, but when I'm talking about, like, Panharmonicon foils, for instance, even if they put that product out next year, that card's not going to be in there. They've got so many other things they can target, right? They don't, they, and they have it generally, they have not really gone to the well reprinting cards they just printed. Like most cards get two to four years before they see a reprint, unless they're really important. Like something like a Fatal Push is probably not as safe, but Panharmonicon is unique enough that it's going to get, you know, could be three to five years before you ever see it. Right, right, right. You know, keep in mind too that a lot of the relevant cards in EDH aren't rares. You know, you've got Eternal Witness and Kadama's Reach and Path to Exile uh, and all those types of cards that are huge parts of the format are commons and uncommons, which means that you can build a master set with 249 cards and every single one of those can be a particularly relevant card in the format or like 80%, which is way higher than if you were to compare it to like modern masters where like, you know, 80% of those cards are not meaningful for the format and you're going to be printing them at common, right? So they're, they're more accessible than just like having to crack them at the rare mythic slot. It'd be interesting. Sure. I wonder they might find a different vehicle for it. Cause you don't, that's not a draft. I mean, commander players aren't looking to draft anyways. So I wonder, you know, instead of doing it, why do a draft it, format for it? The, the format that's most into foils is Commander, but they don't have a foil product. Like they, they had Commander's Arsenal once. So, and I guess there was a couple of foils and when they reprinted the Commander decks, right? Yeah, something like that. But And we've had some Judge foils, but nowhere near as much as like supply is not meeting demand. <laughs> and if we've learned anything from Wizards, if there's a, a demand hole to fill, they will try to fill it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. They're going to be bring back the Alara all foil packs. Um, hey, something's going to happen. I, I think you want to be focused on EDH foils that you can flip relatively quickly in a six to twelve month span. If you got to hold it for three to five years, you might be in trouble. Right. All right. My first card this week: Insolent Neonate from Shadows of Orinistrad. Uh, looking at the foil copies, currently around about three dollars with uh, an okay amount of supply. But this is proven to be a uh, uh, essentially an auto-include in all of the dredge-style decks in modern, whether you're playing like actual dredge with uh, Stitched, Am- Stitched Amalgam. No, is that its name? The Blue Black 3-3. Three, three. Um, Prize Amalgam. Or, or the new variant with Hollow One, which is pretty cool. I know Saffron Olive played it uh, recently, and there was actually a Teamer Hollow One deck that did well at uh, Philadelphia this weekend. Um, so it, that's going to be in every modern dredge format deck that shows up. Uh, so, we're, you know, $3 for a foil common is, is, is okay. It's a little more than I would want to spend normally, but it's going to have, 
it's going to show up in a bunch of different decks. Um, and also with the modern pro tour in, uh, this weekend, hollow one is the type of deck that could, could come out, could pop out, right? Like it could be the breakout deck, not guaranteeing it, but you know, it gets around a lot of the hate aimed at like storm and Tron. And it's probably also pretty good at beating up on those decks. So, uh, it may be pretty well positioned. I don't make any promises because it's definitely out there. But, you know, if there was a deck that's going to come out of nowhere to do well at the Pro Tour, this one could be one of them. And, of course, that would send all these cards into a tizzy. Um, and, you know, if it ends up being a, a staple of the format or, or at least a Tier 2, that will that would mean it wouldn't be just a flash in the pan and people would keep coming back to pick up their foil insolent neonates. And really, anyone that wants to play graveyard strategies in modern is going to want to pick up foil insolent neonates at some point. So, uh you know, three to ten, I think is reasonable. At the very least, I would be keeping these an eye out for these in trade binders at, at the store. Uh, so you can catch them on sale on Star City Channel for a ball or something like that. Foil commons are tricky, but it's when it's played, it's played as a four of. Um, as you said, there are multiple strategies that employ the card. I worry a little bit that because the name of the card is not plain specific, um, they can slot it in almost anywhere they want to. Uh, and so I would expect to see it in some future master set as just like a throw in common. And then that ex- explodes the foils. I like it a lot better as like something to load up on as trade targets. If you're in a modern heavy era or area or like, a you know, you, you know, a bunch of people that play dredge or something, or you just go to a lot of big events where it's, it's, you're going to cast a wide enough net to find the right audience for the card. I question whether there might be other cards in those decks that are of higher rarity um, that are more worth targeting, but the total amount of supply in this card, given how recently it came out, is not very high. So people have been buying the card. And mm-hmm. you know, if you were to say pick up four of them for 12 or, you know, 12 of them for 36 or something, and you're trying to unload them for, say, 100 a little bit down the road, it's not crazy. Yeah, I mean, I won't tell you that it's a flawless, it's, that it's bulletproof. You can tell by the tone of my voice, I'm not like in love with it. But I do see it as a card that could definitely pick up steam uh, that you wouldn't expect otherwise. And it has gone up since it came out because I remember looking at this pretty early on when I realized how popular it was um, and and was becoming early. And uh, yeah, I mean, Shadows over Innistrad and the card is as low a supply as it is. There's definitely people picking this up. I think one of the things I would recommend if you people were poking around at this card would be to look at foreign foils, Japanese, Korean, Russian, and see how close they are to the $3 price tag. If I could pick up some Russians in 3 or $4, then that would be pretty sweet. Yeah, um, geez. You know, any, anytime you can get what is going to become a staple or is a staple in a foreign language with almost no premium, um, you're probably you're probably on to something, especially if you're only going to take on a few, if you're going to take on like a hundred or 200 of a card and your plan is to buy list then foreign foils is not where you want to be. But if you're planning on picking up four, eight, 12 of something and you think you need, you're going to hold it for a little bit, not a bad idea at all. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Foil Russian neonates. I'm sure you can get somebody to pay you for that. Mm-hmm. I would buy those at four or $5. Yeah. So next one on my list this week is uh, a card that was talked about on Brainstorm Brewery as well. Um, Anger from Judgment was a break- breaking bulk pick by their guest this week. And I decided to look up the foils and realize there are practically none around because though the card has showed up in a couple of different ancillary products, um, it's never been reprinted in foil. So uh, foil angers, if you can find them around at your local LGS or something or in a trade binder in the $14 to $16 range, uh, I have a feeling you're going to get a chance to out them for 30 to 40 down the road. Um, pretty unlikely unless that commander foil product shows up that we were talking about that this thing is going to see play 
reprint in foil and it's been reprinted relatively recently. So it's not like it's a, a high priority reprint in general. Um, and believe it or not, Anger shows up in 9,000 EDH decks on EDH.rec, which means there's probably more like 20 or 30 or 40,000 people playing the card. Um, ultra low supply, tough to find foil. If you spot one, grab it. Yeah, this card is awesome. I have it in uh, at least one of my EDH decks, possibly two. Haste is like really good in Commander. Uh, if you're not familiar with the format, um, it is a long time between putting a creature into play and getting to attack with it sometimes and being able to do it right away is, uh, is a big deal. And Anger is a damn good way to do it, too. So, uh, you know, and the best part about this is that we're talking about, uh, what is it, Judgment Foil. So even if the card takes off or even if uh, this gets reprinted in a foil set, it's not going to be the original foils. You're not going to have that old border, which is going to be popular with people. So I think for if supply is that low, then, yeah, I'm all about this. Let me jump ahead to my other one since they kind of go hand in hand. Oh, wow. what, re- what recent red uh, EDH card, most popular EDH card so far out of Rivals of Ixalan, would love to have haste? Uh, would this be by chance the one that you've been talking about for the le- every time you've been on the cast since it was spoiled? <laughs> uh, I am referring to Atali Primal Storm. This is the 6-6 six, six for 6. Uh, Elder Dinosaur, when it attacks, you exile the top card of each player's library. Then you can cast any number of non-land cards exiled this way without paying their mana cost. This card will single-handedly get me into building a red deck for EDH. Because um, I normally play Atraxa, which does not have red. Um, but I absolutely want to cast everything off the top of everybody's deck. Yeah, this is a this is a really cool card and is a perfect example of why anger is good because you get to do stuff like that. And I mean, who you know, it doesn't even have to be good. It's just fun, right? It's just fun to be like, I'm just going to cast anything that shows up and it's going to be cool. And uh, you know, if it's good, it's good. And if it's not, oh well, it was fun. What I like about this card is that I'm a little disappointed. It's a rare, not a mythic, but um, I love that the power level is so obvious and that it's going to be a potential include in any red deck because it doesn't really care. doesn't have any dinosaur synergies per se, other than being a dinosaur. So it's just a, it's, it's got a very primeval Titan kind of feel, right? Like just a really good six drop that can do some really broken things with the right components. You get a lightning grease or something on this and you're really going to town. And um, there aren't that many foils around, given that it just came out. Like, I am confused as to where all the foils have dried up so fast. I mean, Channel Fireball on TCG has 20 listed at 944 plus 99 cents shipping. I think that's a slam dunk, uh, like $200 purchase. You, you stash those away for a couple of years, and th- these will be $20 foils, easy double up. And, you know, it's just not going to take that long to get there, given how few I'm seeing on the market heading into what should be peak supply. Do you think that we are still kind of at the point where the prices haven't come down from the pre-sale enough yet? The thing is, there's, there's almost no inventory here. Like what I if if that was if that was true, um, and you felt like being patient, you could take a look at the early summer sales and try to pick this up in this maybe six to eight dollar range. But I think it's just as likely that a few people like us and people that are listening pick up thirty or forty copies at ten dollars, and all of a sudden it's a fifteen dollar card, and then the next twenty or thirty copies go away and it bang it's twenty dollar card it's possible i don't i'm not saying it's not that is uh it is a really cool card i mean it's going to be popular with anyone who wants to play red part of this depends on like how well you think standards doing right now like i'm going to run a a survey this week on twitter and see what store owners say about how standard has or has not rebounded um from what i consider i assume was a strong lull um 
with all of the problems that it's had in, over the last year. If you think standard is only doing like, okay, this spring, then, you know, it stands to reason that rivals may not be selling that well. And that may be part of why the foil rares, just, there aren't that many of them posted to these sites. It'll be interesting if, uh, if rivals cards, you know, have a really high price tag in like two or three years, because no one likes standard and all of the, uh, none of the product got opened. So all the price stayed high. The other thing with this card is I would definitely be looking at the Japanese sites and at magiccardmarket.eu and checking to see whether the foreign versions, foreign Korean, Russian, sometimes maybe German, um, whether those foils are reasonably priced because I'm, I'm having no trouble whatsoever, um, despite contrary opinions from other people that are interested in EDH finance, unloading foreign foils to EDH players, especially in low quantity, um, have managed to get some pretty good premiums on both Japanese and Russian cards throughout most of 2017 and into 2018. And this is the kind of card that's flashy enough that I think people will be into the foreign foils down the road. Very flashy, certainly an impact on the board. Cool looking, uh, a cool effect, a a cool card. Um, Okay. So I'm going to grab my other card this week. Uh, similar vein, didn't really realize this at first, sort of, well, similar color at least. Uh, I'm looking at Chaos Warp uh, from Commander's Arsenal. Uh, Chaos Warp is like the second or third most popular deck card, red card in EDH. It's in 23,000 decks on EDH rack. There's only one foil printing of, uh, of Chaos Warp. It was from the Commander's Arsenal set. So the only foil is from a very, intentionally very limited run product. Uh, these were selling at well over um, MSRP at the time. Um, so, I mean, you've got the most popular red card with really low printed supply and fairly low supply, you know, available for purchase right now, fairly low liquid supply. Uh, you know, their copies are like nine bucks, but like that seems like a, a pretty clean double up to $20 to me. I did not realize that these foils existed and I certainly didn't realize that their supply was this low. Um, I mean, with that much demand from EDH, I think even if you're just putting a few copies aside for your own red decks in EDH and the side benefit is after you've played them for a little while, if you take care of them, you'll be able to flip them out. It seems perfect to me. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah, I I can't think of anything bad to say about this pick. The thing about Chaos Warp is that red just doesn't have a lot of ways of getting rid of problem permanents that that doesn't involve damage. So the ability to tuck something back into their deck and take the risk that they're going to flip something worse off the top is is not uh, an effect that uh, other colors would be super excited about, but in red, it's really good. Yeah, it is. Uh, it it rarely disappoints, and even when it does, it's really funny. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Uh, and the, the color has access to none of that generally. It's so little of that that, um, you know, if you're playing mono red, which not a lot of people are, but people definitely do, uh, you got to do something. And Chaos Warp is one of the few choices. Yeah. So moving right along to our third segment of the week, there was a whole bunch of action at the SCG event that went down in Philadelphia over the weekend, January 27th, 28th. The main event was Team Constructed, which included Standard, Modern, and Legacy decks. Kind of, you have to kind of take the results of some of these decks with a grain of salt because just because you finish top eight with a deck in one of those formats, unless you see the guy's record throughout the weekend, you don't really know how good the deck was. Um, but there, between that and the the lesser events, the classics for modern and legacy and standard, there were some really cool decks that jumped out at me. 
Um, one of the decks that was in the main event... Uh, like what? Uh, well, one of the d- decks that jumped out at me from the main event was the third-place modern deck in the hands of Michael uh, Derso. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his last name. Apologies, Michael. Um, he was running a Madcap Experiment deck in modern, um, played to a high finish. This is basically a Arbor Elf, Birds of Paradise, kind of green-red ramp strategy that runs four Blood Moon in the main, Utopia Sprawls to ramp up quick, and then tries to use Madcap Experiment if it has it in hand to go find a Platinum Empyreon, which currently can only really be dealt with by Path of Exile, right? Because if you're running Fatal Pushes and Lightning Bolts, that doesn't do anything to Platinum Empyreon. That's the 8-8 that uh, uh, says your life total can't change. So if you drop that thing on like turn three or whatever in this deck, and they don't have an immediate solution for it, that thing just starts hitting them upside the head, and no matter what they're doing to you, your life total is still locked in place. Um, pretty gross. Deck also runs three Chandra Torch of Defiance of note. Um, I certainly have a bunch of Madcap experiments sitting around that I would love to see jump. The problem with that kind of card is that it's so narrow that this deck really needs to put up consistent performances over time before you would see you know, the key four ups move. And because it was a rare and not a mythic, and it's from a very recent set, just came out last year in the Kaladesh block, um, I suspect I'm still going to be sitting on a pile of Madcap experiments a little bit further down the road. Would you say that your purchase of that card was a Madcap experiment, James? Yeah, and I would say that it was not not wise. Um, but it goes into the same pile as aggressive mining and a whole bunch of other uh pet red cards that never get there uh well what was your second third pick this week second pick (laughs) red card pet red card uh i do like it though um platinum imperium was that the one that's indestructible no it's just an eight eight artifact creature that says your life total can't change okay yeah and uh did it have i don't have it in front of me did it have mono red or was it mono red or did it have green in it or it did have green, right? Because you said a Utopia Sprawl. Yeah, it's a, it's a green-red deck. It's like two Platinum Empyrean, four Arbor Elf, two Birds of Paradise, three Huntmaster of the Fells, an Inferno Titan, two Stormbreath Dragon, three Tireless Tracker, two, three Corsair Crufix, three Chandra Torch of Defiance, four Blood Moon, four Utopia Sprawl, three Bonfire of the Damned, and four Madcap Experiment. It was like a green-red mid-rangey deck that tries to randomly get off a Madcap Experiment. Okay, so I ended up on a different... Okay. And then a different list than you did. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a nifty strategy. Uh, I would guess that, well, Platinum Imperium already went up in price because of that deck. Uh, well, back when Madcap Experiment actually came out. Um, so I, that would be the first place I would look for for price increases. I mean, this, this deck feels pretty fringe. There's already like... 15 to 20 decks that are posted up at a higher position and unlikely to be unseated. One of the problems with the format being so diverse is that people are not really getting pushed off of their decks. And Mm -hmm. one of the things, you know, a a deck, it used to be when the deck, when the format was a little narrower, like if you think about during Eldrazi winter, there was only really four or five viable decks that were tier one um, that could win a tournament because the Eldrazi were sitting squarely in the, in the center, you know, atop the pyramid and everybody else had to be built to beat that. Um, it was a lot easier for a card that appeared on camera as a four of in something new that was going to be well positioned and for a period of time to you know see some serious price appreciation. But given how diverse the format is now, one of the reasons we're not seeing a lot of movement on modern cards is because, A, people that have decks already don't have to switch to another one. 
And B, there are so many different things to play that, that there are relatively few new staples, like Fatal Push is, it, and and the reprinting of uh, Opt are, you know, two of the only kind of like staple four ofs, and they're not of a rarity that that has significant financial consequences. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, that has certainly been the biggest barrier to the format to seeing more cards spike in value as the format being as diverse as it is, which I think is part of the, one of the things that people love about legacy too. Um, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. Uh, did you say that it had uh, Arbor Elf in it? I missed that. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it's got the Utopia Sprawl Arbor Elf combo. Yeah. Which I'm a yeah. big fan of, you know, that deck could actually play uh, blood sun. You could run blood sun in that. Cause you're not running, you're not, you don't have to run any fetches if it's green red and then it would turn to it all the time between Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl, both being able to do it on their own. Be kind of funny. I wonder if the yeah, I, haven't would... chan- I haven't had a chance to test blood sun yet, but everything that we've heard from pros so far has been that generally speaking, blood moon is still the pick um, in most scenarios, but I'm curious to see how that plays out over time. I'll tell you this much. I haven't gone in on blood sun yet. Have you? No, no, I haven't. And this is more, I, as a, as a brand new rare, I'm unlikely to get too deep into it until I have a more of a reason to believe that it's a good card. Although I got to tell you, you know, what are the foils of that worth at the moment? I mean, those could end up pretty valuable if it's the real thing. Because there are like several decks in the format that would be all about having that uh, option available to them. Uh, yeah, the foils are like $15 right now. That's not it's not real. Can't be doing that yet. Uh that the, the the coolest deck though had to be that uh, the modern deck the uh, Gorios as foretold. Yeah, <laughs> like this is just everything I want to do in a game of Magic. You've got Gorios Vengeance as foretold, uh, Ancestral Vision to cast for free off the as foretold. You've got some Living Ends to cast off the as foretold. You have like a random Deceiver Exarch Kiki Jiki combo. I couldn't. I'm, I saw that. I saw the Deceiver Exarch first. I'm like. What is this in here for? And I thought, like, Kiki Jiki, really? This is just, they didn't fill this with more support cards. They're just like, yeah, I got five slots. Let's play another combo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can see this having some awkward draws, but uh, I love anything that's running for as foretold. I love anything that runs Jay's Friends Prodigy. Um, I'm fine with people randomly pairing Living End with Kiki Jiki. <laughs> the, uh, this deck is ambitious. It's the kind of thing that seems so insane, I would never dare run it. Um, for fear of being laughed out of some place, but clearly testing paid off. And somebody, this 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 player, Tom Medvek, um, finished second in the Modern Classic, which was was only a couple hundred players, but still, uh, this is pretty interesting. And, and if I have, I think I have all these cards. I, I I'd be willing to throw this together and see if it can get anything done locally. Yeah, this is the type of deck. I'm looking at this list. It feels like it's probably more technical than it appears. You know, you've got like the two Jaces in there um Vern's pop prodigy so that means you can do stuff like uh cast um use jace and then untap him with the super exarch to like tap him again and do all sorts of silly stuff so definitely some some room for for clever play in this strategy and as someone as a fan of these types of decks i will say showing up and uh top eating a star city classic uh randomly is not as easy as it sounds like you can get that lucky but you know the deck's got to have some some capable draws to actually pull that off it's not a fluke it's not a four-round event 
Yeah, and the, and the classic is often staff is being is populated by people very good players that that didn't manage to do well on day one of the other event, right? Yes, yeah, they're they're reasonably. High. I mean, I wouldn't say high caliber, right? It's a Star City event, but they're not they're not nothing. I, when I saw this, I definitely took to Twitter and reminded people yet again that they were wrong about As Foretold Foils, um, a card I've been stocking up on. And the more decks I see it appear in, the more confident I feel in that pick. I don't know who I'm yelling at, but I'm yelling at someone. This was a good pick, damn it. Raw, 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 raw. <laughs> well, because I, I, I ran a, a survey, I think it was in June. It's like early summer where I said, like, at what price would you buy As Foretold Foils? And almost everybody said, like, no price or like below like five dollars or something and you know it, it, people the, this card does nothing when it hits the board yes but it also casts spells for free <laughs> and and it does it on your turn and their turn so with any amount of card draw you can set up all sorts of nonsense and especially in modern when you get to cast things like ancestral vision and living end off of it um, I'm not at all surprised to see that people have figured out a way to abuse it. You know, I don't really get to the store to play Magic mo- much these days, but if I did, I would probably be playing something with As Foretold in it. Yeah, that looks fun. Um, all right, so in Standard, the the deck that uh, piqued my interest as looking super fun to play was the Sultai Constrictor build that fi- finished first uh, in the Team Constructed Open. Um, this was running... It's all built around four copies of Winding Constrictor, so you can double up on counters. And you're dropping in Verderous Gearhulks, Walking Ballistas, Glint Sleeve Siphoner, a card that's seen some uh, upward price movement lately. It's one of the top five cards in the format right now. Um, Jade Light Ranger is already good as a 2-1 that can come in as a 4-3 and draw you, and or draw you some cards. When you get to add extra counters to it because of Winding Constrictor, that card just gets gross. Um, Ravenous Chupacabra, of course, is the Necrotel de Jour. Servant of the Conduit, getting extra counters has always been good. And then this thing splashes for Scarab God, because why wouldn't you play that ultra-broken mythic? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that card. Scarab God. Uh, you know, the only thing that makes me feel better about Scarab God is it was never below, like, $25, so I don't have to feel like I missed it. <laughs> I, I opened a Russian one in a in a random pack. My pops put in my stocking for Christmas, so uh, I've got my EDH copy. Do you like getting magic cards or uh, for Christmas little gifts like that? I, I like getting like random little amounts. Uh, I wouldn't want somebody to try to buy me a deck or something. Years and years ago, I wrote a uh, article on MTG Price. It was an open letter to friends and family members asking them not to buy you magic cards. <laughs> I mean, you have. A, it depends on how diverse your interests are, right? Like, if you're only into a couple things, then your family should probably focus on them, um, especially if you just up and tell them what you need. Uh, um, anyway, yeah, um, yeah th- this is a cool deck, and it's fun- nice to see Wine Constrictor back. It's always been a cool, uh, cool card. Um, I like, you know, it had a, some interesting dynamics back in the day. It made for some very cool play patterns. Uh, it kind of got pushed out of the format with energy. Um, but now that uh, we have the recent bannings, it's gotten a chance to come back. So that's kind of cool. Uh, Sleeve Siphoner. Uh, interestingly enough, that's the uh, the first Dark Confidant that actually, I don't want to say it was the new Dark Confidant, but it's the first one to actually have done anything, right? Like after like eight attempts to remake this card in standard, they finally put one out that does something yeah i mean it it turns out that the energy mechanic is so broken that it will fix any any design problems you had um was there uh was there much else in standard going on that you thought was interesting because you know, i'm generally not a 
didn't see too much. I, you know, the you've got the, the, the well, I will say the new blue white auras deck uh, has gotten some attention and I had actually written down uh, Legion's initiative is one of my cards to watch this week before I remembered that this weekend's pro tour was modern and not standard. Um, but that reminds me of the Theros heroic decks from, uh, yep. I played that one from Theros. So, uh, it looks, it's looks like a real pile, but apparently yep. it has been doing quite well. People are saying that they're, you know, five going leagues with it. So maybe, uh, I suppose I probably said the same thing with Theros or was around too. Yeah, little kid auras every once in a while. There's just, it just works. <laughs> yeah. It, it, if, if the, the removal doesn't align well against that strategy. Um, then you can just start flying over and smacking them upside the head for huge amounts of damage. And anybody who played, uh, what was it? Imperial armor. Is that the card from Weatherlight that used to destroy people and limit it all the time? Gives you <laughs> got me. It's one double white. Uh, for an uh, enchant creature that gives you, gives your creature plus X plus X, where that's the number of cards in your hand. So you just like drop mm. a two drop, then drop that on three and start hitting them upside the head for five, six, seven. It was a, ever, ever since that era, I, I, I've had kept a little bit of respect handy for the aura strategies. Um, I, did noti- I did notice that the first place modern deck for the team constructed was humans, um, yeah. looking very much like the version we've seen and running Keswick Malcontents. This, ver- this particular list had one in the main and one in the side. Um, nothing else too super exciting uh, in terms of new stuff. But I think that um, there's room for growth on Ancient Ziggurat and Cavern of Souls if this deck keeps doing well, um, because both cards have demand that is broader than this deck. But I, the deck is doing well enough consistently enough that I think that it will be one of the modern decks that potentially could buck the trend and it, whose cards could see some real growth just because it it does if a deck does well enough and is flexible enough to address various pivots in the field in the meta then you know enough people can get pulled in on it um to see some price movement um and one of the things i like about this deck is it's relatively straightforward but it does have some play it's not it, it's a relatively linear creature strategy but it does have quite a lot of interplay in terms of how you sequence things in terms of whether you take a more controlling stance or a more aggressive stance in, in how you play out. And as compared to something like Goryeo's Vengeance Living End, as we're told, um, which sa- seems super wacky on paper, this kind of deck just will appeal to more players. Uh, the people that are just looking for a list that they can digest and understand and they can picture how they're going to win something with it. Yeah, the nice thing about the humans list is that it is you can build it as just a fireball, right? Like I'm going to punch you in the face with my pile of humans and hope that the first 10 cards in my library are enough to kill you. But there's also some room to build this uh, in a very in very different manners because the human pool is so deep relative to other tribes. Um, you know, you can build some very clever decks that that maybe never even really are that interested in the red zone. You know, they play, you know, with the intention, they play four Catholic malcontents and their plan is to just spam the board with humans and then just fireball you out two turns in a row or something like that, or put together combos, you know, you have Magus of the Moon and um, Dark Confidant. So there's a lot of room in the strategy too, and uh, can reach across all five colors. And you're right, it is done well and well and well. And this one uh, took first place in the hands of Ross Merriam. So you have a, a very established player who knows what they're doing, who knows how to pick a deck, uh, picking this up. You know, he he did not choose to play Death Shadow. He showed up with humans. Uh, so definitely, 
not just random people getting lucky, right? Like you have talented players who could who could play any deck well and they're choosing this one. And I think this is this and Hollow One are the two decks I will be keeping my eye out to see show up at the Pro Tour. Fair. All right, so moving right along, our topic of the week is the Magic Arena economy. And we're a little behind the the ball on this, but because I was on vacation and you and Cliff were talking about other things, um, we're we're getting to this a couple of weeks after the the announcement. But basically what went down was that the team that's working on Magic Arena had sent out press releases and some information to the people over at Kotaku. And then they followed up with a, uh, a live stream that they, they published where they were doing kind of the on-the-couch in- developers interview format that is so popular these days. And this was something like around January 16th, 17th, 18th. And what we learned in that discussion um, is that the arena economy definitely will not have bots. Um, because it will not have vendors or the ability to outright buy individual cards. So uh, if I was the bot owners uh, over on Magic Online and I had any kind of a significant bot business, I would be trying to figure out my exit strategy, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, the writing on that has been on that particular wall for quite some time. It was just a matter of how quickly you were going to leave, I guess, you know, like how, how soon that exit needed to be available to you. But I mean, if you're a bot owner and this is your livelihood, you had to have come to the conclusion that this is where things were going to go before Wizards announced it vocally. So, I mean, hopefully this is not catching you by surprise. Several listeners have engaged with me on Twitter and direct uh, messaging to explain to me that there's no way that Arena replaces MTGO completely. But I think that they are, you know, missing the point. The goal is for it to replace MTGO. That's where they're headed. But they're going to leave their options open because they don't want to dispense with the revenue, which is higher per unit per player, by the way, on Magic Online, even as bad as that system is, because people have to buy into things over and over again. Whereas this new arena model um, can be has a free to play track. And anytime there's a free-to-play track, the majority of users are going to pursue it, especially those that can't afford to do otherwise. And so they have to have volume on Arena that exceed, greatly exceeds Magic Online before the economics will shape up in such a way that they can say, you know, a year's notice, two years' notice, six months' notice, whatever, we're no longer going to be supporting Magic Online. This will be the last set we release or whatever. We're nowhere close to that particular moment. But my guess is that moment will happen within two years. Um, first of all, their development team, despite being more robust than it was before, like the Arena team, if I had to guess, um, based on what we've seen so far, is a better team than they had on Magic Online. But it's still nowhere near Activision Blizzard level, for instance. They're not like developing with hundreds of developers. They're probably developing with, I had to guess, 10 to 15 developers. And in that kind of scenario, they're going to move much more slowly than you might expect from like Call of Duty content or you know the rollout of some major release. This is a tier three video game release, um, even in its latest incarnation. So because of that, it's going to take some time for them to, you know, ramp up and get all of the features built into the system that they want. And the economy, as they've explained it, is highly experimental. So it's what the other thing we learned was that it's not exactly like Hearthstone, 
Like in Hearthstone, if you've played, you know that you know you accumulate cards, but then if you want different cards for your constructed decks, you have to basically use a dust system where you're breaking down cards you don't want to pay for cards that you need. But inside the Magic system, they want to have a whole bunch of different thing formats you can play down the road, and they want you to have a big collection. So instead of using a dust system where you destroy cards to get cards, instead they're handing out these things called wild cards, which are basically just bonuses you get from playing. And the wild cards can be traded in for, if you get an uncommon wild card, you can trade it in for any uncommon you want. If you get a mythic wild card in a prize pack from something you did well in or from your dailies or whatever, then you can trade that in for a mythic. And the goal... Let me pause you here. I was I thought that it was if you got like a a mythic wild card that you got a random mythic. You're telling me you get to choose a mythic? Yeah. Oh, I misunderstood that. Yeah. So that's that's a big deal, right? Because then like they can support a plethora of formats. Clearly what they're looking for here is they want high levels of engagement over time and they want to for the game to be as sticky as possible. And they, it, if they adopt the, the Hearthstone crafting model, then it's hard for them to support this kind of like broad, like here's your, your super collection you're building over time that's going to keep you in, engaged with this game. And part of it was probably that they didn't want to copy Hearthstone completely because they knew they would be laughed at for doing so. Um, and part of it is that they're trying to ad- adapt the Hearthstone model to the dynamics of Magic the Gathering, which is a different game than Hearthstone um, and has different requirements. So I think this is interesting. I don't think anybody, including the developers, knows if this is going to work. So we have to see how this plays out like in six months, 12 months. One of the things that we we also learned was that they're not in a big rush to add, you know, for instance, modern and almost certainly will not tackle legacy or vintage because the problem is you then have to have the developers code all those old cards. And we're talking about tens of thousands of cards. So what you really want to do is start from a starting point, your most recent standard sets, and then just let the formats evolve as additional sets come out over time so that you're you're never really going back to code old cards per se. You're just coding the, the new cards, which dramatically reduces your development load and the taxing on your rules engine. So... All of that leads me to believe that you're much more likely to get a Frontier-style format than modern in the next two or three years on Magic Arena. Yeah, that was the same conclusion I was going to draw, is that this is this is where your new format comes from, is where, where Arena can support it. You know, you have modern, and then what will replace modern will be the format that you can play on Arena. And I could see them doubling back a little bit, and I'm not saying they will. But they could probably reach back a little bit. So, for instance, you know, if Rivals of Ixalan is the first, um, you know, if Ixalan block is the first supported block on Arena, like in the beta, they might reach back to like Kaladesh um, or something like that. You know, and they could even probably go a little further back. The rule sets for the last couple sets haven't been too wild, so you could bring some of that in. But you're not getting 8th edition, right? You're not getting Kamigawa, which had Fate Spinner that makes players skip phases, no one's <laughs> the developers are not interested in programming that nonsense. Well, the thing is that they they still want you to spend money in here. Like free to play gets you in the door, but they do want you to buy things. And they want you to buy drafts and and they want you to play current sets. So if the economics get to the point where the game is so big that they they can say, well, 
we think if we old this if we add this old set, um, for instance, Rise of the Eldrazi, very popular draft format. We want people to draft. We want to let people draft that for a couple months, and the economics are such that they think they can make money off that. If they get that big and they're doing that well, then they may go. You know, those doors are always open. But for now, as they're going through their you know the first part of their growth curve, it makes perfect sense that they're going to focus on new oh, yeah. sets well, only, and I, so. And while that and while that's the case, online modern legacy and vintage action has to happen over on MGGO, as does Popper and 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 anything else that doesn't have access to the cards it normally needs. And so we are going to live in this weird dual world, sort of like we did with Magic Online and Duels of the Planeswalkers, where there's a more mainstream focused product that's a little sh- more polished that is, has a fairly limited card pool. And you get to choose between the two for a while. But if you think that Magic Online is going to exist in 10 years, you're crazy. Because the that code base is not being turned into Arena, which means it's being left to rot, essentially. Like, they're working with what they've got to add new sets. But it's going to get to the point where that thing is just so old and creaky, they can't continue with it. And they're hoping that by that point, they can transition everybody over to Arena voluntarily and dodge the bullet of having to figure out some kind of compensation system for all the collections that are locked up there. Yeah, and keep, and keep in mind, when I was talking about bringing back uh, old sets and what they would or wouldn't do is mostly just about not wanting to program the rules engine, right? Yeah. Like, you don't want to have to support the rules for that. And, yeah, I, you know, this also gives them the ability to slowly push towards this new... Um, this new format, whatever that is that, that, that replaces modern, it's okay. You know, we're going to replace modern with, with sets that are legal on arena. Uh, and, and we, and you know, they can cha- make changes to the pro tour to support that as well, because then they'll be like, Oh, well, the main reason people want moto is to test for the pro tour. Well, if the pro tour is standard, you can still do that on arena or, and you know, you can still draft on arena. We can make that set, set it up to mimic, the you know how the pro tour works like even if they decide to do like weird draft formats on arena and not do standard 15 pack type of thing they can always have those available for the pro tour um and you know they can also do once they have maybe enough of a card base to support whatever the new format is say a frontier type thing uh once that's up and running on arena then they can move that over to the pro tour and and then that way they don't have to worry about like trying to have a modern pro tour where modern isn't isn't playable on arena they just will just keep doing standard pro tours until their new format exists on arena and then say okay well we're going to kick off this new format uh, that's new to arena with its own pro tour type of thing so all the pieces are kind of falling into place yeah. I mean, a couple other interesting things. The booster packs are going to be eight card boosters if you're purchasing them through the store um, or earning them somehow, containing five commons, two uncommons, and a rare or mythic. So a completely different rarity system, really. Um, and then draft packs, they've <laughs> intelligently taken the land out. So they are 14 card packs when you're drafting. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose so. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but that's fine. Uh, I mean, all in all, it'll be an interesting... It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The you know, I gotta highlight that if you were disappointed to see trading, I'm wondering what game you've been playing and who you've been paying attention, like what you've been paying attention to, because no one in the right mind thought there was going to be trading in this environment. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole industry is moving away from supporting, um, you know, cash, peer to peer cash economies. Um, they want to capture as much of the revenue as they possibly can themselves. Um, and I have, have you got your arena invite yet? 
Uh, I didn't sign up for one. Uh, so you're not you're not interested in the game? No, because right. I I mean, what what's its primary purpose? Is drafting, right? Like I've never found drafting to be intra- that to be worth it at all. So not my scene. All right. So that's our show for this week. Uh, where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I am on Twitter at WizardBumping, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price for the Watchtower series. Uh, and I occasionally show up on the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Uh, this weekend with the Modern Pro Tour, I should be on duty uh, giving you guys the heads up on anything interesting that develops there. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the biz, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and make you money playing Magic the Gathering. James, I uh, enjoyed our chat. I thought it was a good episode. Uh, Good to have you back, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis, and I'll see all you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.